Smarties, today we are so excited to welcome anxiety expert and OCD child therapist Natasha Daniels to the podcast. She is an expert on all things OCD, and this was a really fascinating conversation amongst the three of us. We chat about how people misunderstand OCD and what the true definition of OCD is. She digs into the different types of OCD and how they play into each other. She shares about how personification of OCD is a really effective tool and how it can help people who are suffering from OCD. OCD. We dig into a conversation about the difference between perfectionism and OCD and how they overlap. And she shares her thoughts on anxiety and how to talk about it with kids. She further digs into anxiety and OCD in this episode and gives concrete examples of OCD red flags. We're very excited to share this episode with you today because frankly, we learned a lot and we're always excited in those episodes where we're the students alongside you, our audience. If you are interested in working with my ed therapist, in Redondo and Manhattan Beaches, California. You can sign up for a phone call on Steph's website, www.myedtherapist.com. Have a learner who struggles with executive functioning skills and or an ADHD diagnosis. Steph's practice does that too. My practice cap educational therapy group specializes in that as well. And that's really what we do at this point. So our website is www.capedtherapy.com. That's K as in kite, A as in apple, P as in Peter, P as in Paul. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 251 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we are thrilled to have OCD specialist LCSW also. Natasha Daniels onto the podcast. Hi, Natasha. Hey, thanks for having me. We're very excited. You've been a long-awaited episode. Um, We were waiting for the right person to come on to chat about this topic. So before we kind of dig in, why don't you tell us who you are and what you do and who you do it for? Okay. I am an anxiety and OCD child therapist, and I'm the mom to three kids with anxiety and OCD. Like they're currently 11, 13, and 19, all with different struggles around those themes. And I had a private practice um, that I had been in for 16 years, working with families, helping them raise kids with anxiety or OCD. And then I had switched over and I'm currently fully doing global support. So I have a podcast, a YouTube channel for people who directly who have anxiety or OCD. And I create online resources for parents raising kids with anxiety or OCD. So I have an online school with courses and I have an online membership. So it's a lot. You got a lot going on. And don't worry to our audience. We're going to link everything that Natasha just talked about in the show notes to this episode. Okay. So let me just preface this with I've watched a lot of Natasha's YouTube videos and I've listened to a little bit of her podcast as well. And I read her book about anxiety sucks and all of these things. So I have a little bit of knowledge about these things and I love how you explain it. So will you in your definition explain OCD to our audience? The saddest part about OCD is that people don't understand OCD. And that boggles my mind at this point in mental health that we still have so many people and even mental health professionals who don't fully understand what OCD is. We think of it being as someone who's like a neat freak or someone who's clean or like a positive adjective or someone who's neurotic. And that's really just such a small component of a small theme in OCD. So OCD is having an intrusive thought or feeling, and then the need to do or avoid something to get brief relief. 
but the more you do or the more you avoid, the bigger the intrusive thought or feeling grows. And so it's this vicious cycle. And that's the foundation. That's the format that you can plug and play, like whatever theme or intrusive thought, it fits into that format of that vicious cycle. So it's intrusive and then avoidant behavior. Or compulsive behavior. Okay. So let's define those a little bit more just in case our audience is not clear. Yeah. So let me give you some concrete examples of various themes. So I mean, like OCD comes in multiple flavors, you know, and people have kind of like, I call it like the OCD buffet of like a little scoop of this, a little scoop of that. People in the OCD community give these things names, but that can be beneficial in the sense that it's such a little shorthand of like, oh, you have moral OCD or you have scrupulosity OCD or you have symmetry OCD. And I'll talk about what these are in a second. But it's a double-edged sword because on the other end of it, people are like, I only want to know about moral OCD. Mm. I only want to know about contamination OCD. And it's like, you don't just stick to that flavor typically. And so understanding the whole format is important. So if I have some OCD themes around moral OCD, like scrupulosity OCD, the core fear might be, I'm worried I'm going to be a bad person. I'm worried I was a bad person. I'm worried I might be a bad person. I'm worried that I am a bad person. And so an intrusive thought might be, oh my gosh, I think you were going to call her fat in your head. And then the compulsion might be to mentally argue. So a mental compulsion, I'm not mean. Am I a mean person? No, I'm a nice person. Why would I say that's not who I am? But you did have that thought. So then I'm going back and forth in my head, which is a mental compulsion. Or maybe I have to say to my parent, if I'm a child or to my partner, you know, I'm so sorry, but I think I thought you were fat. And then you get the the relief of, oh, don't worry about it. That's just a thought. Or, oh my gosh, why would you think that? There's still relief there because you confessed it. So that's an example. And no one would think that's OCD if they're not Mm. understanding OCD because that doesn't sound like OCD. So that's an example. Or you might have an intrusive thought that says, dust is contaminated. I can't breathe in dust. And maybe the core fear is, what if it gets into my lungs and I won't be able to breathe? And then I, you know, and, and then I'll die. So really the core core fear is death. But then the compulsion might be, I need to avoid any area that I think is dusty. So I'm not going to go out after five if the wind is picking up, or I am going to excessively clean off my shoes because they might have dust on them. And then, oh my gosh, I touched my shoes. And then I think I touched my dishes. And so I can't use my dishes. I'm gonna have to use plastic dishes just in case. It gets very irrational very quickly. It's nonsensical most of the time. And when we approach it with a rational problem solving, like, well, why don't you just make sure that all the dust is off before? Okay, you already lost. You already lost because you're approaching the OCD thought as if it's rational Mm. and valid. And so when you approach it, like it's valid and rational, you kind of already lost. You're already in the grips of OCD. And that goes for the loved ones as well. When we approach it in a rational way and try to problem solve it in a rational way. It's the instinct though. Intuitive. It's the instinct of saying, that's not realistic. That's not actually what's happening. Like move it along, right? Yeah, totally intuitive. It's the knee-jerk intuitive response. It works for anxiety. Why is it not working for OCD? The problem is the person who's suffering, depending on their cognitive functioning, understands it's irrational. And so the highlight of coming at it in a rational way, one, doesn't help and it grows the OCD. But two, it's very shameful. It's like, you think I'm an idiot. You think I don't know that? You don't think I tried that? And so it's embarrassing. And then it winds up shutting that person down even more. Which would beg the question, and we're going off like our little script that we've typed out, but this is exactly what we knew was going to happen in this episode. So yeah, if the intuitive, rational response from the parent, from the partner is just wash the dish or whatever, or wash the floor, is actually harmful. What is the appropriate response in that scenario? 
because it is compulsive to that person. Like they can't help it. Right. And you have to zoom out and look at the bigger picture because when you start to accommodate, it's like quicksand. Now you're in there and then OCD is like, well, thank you for that. Let me, let me add a little bit here. Let me add a little bit more. It adds over time. And so you wind up being hijacked by OCD. You get sucked into it too. Right. So you as the partner or the parent are now complicit in it. It's almost like you have OCD by proxy. Like you are doing everything compulsively as much as the person who is struggling. And so you have to step back and you have to educate the person who has OCD, what OCD is, you know, because a lot of times they don't understand it themselves and they're approaching it from a rational perspective. Like just don't touch my plates. We won't have a problem. Or, you know, if you just hand it to me that way, or you clean this down beforehand, like if we all follow the rules of the house, then I'm not going to be triggered. And so them first understanding how the more they listen to OCD, the bigger it grows to have an understanding of what compulsions are, what mental compulsions are, and then learning ERP, exposure response prevention, which is, you know, type of CBT that is gold standard approach most of us say that anyway, for handling OCD, that is key. And I always talk about offense and defense. You know, what am I going to do when OCD shows up? And so OCD is knocking and it's telling me, ooh, that's contaminated. What am I going to do with that? You know, what does OCD want me to do? And then what am I going to do? And then there's offense. OCD is quiet right now. And I'm going to purposely go touch something that I know is contaminated. Or maybe I'm going to touch something that's touching something that's contaminated. You know, I'm going to find the entry point to rock the boat and learn how to sit with discomfort and build up my OCD muscles. Hmm. I think that is so important for parents with children that have OCD, really understanding what's really going on and not giving in to make things easier in the moment. Because we all do things to just make things easier in the moment. But it's reminding me of, we were watching the Howie Mandel interview Mm -hmm. that was on Paramount Plus. And Mm -hmm. he was talking about how he lost it because his daughter came in, touched the phone without washing her hands. And if she had just washed her hands, like I wouldn't have had this explosive reaction. Right. And she knew that she needed to wash her hands. Like this is not a new thing in our house. And his wife just basically responded like, we're leaving. We're not doing this anymore with you. Like you have to get help for yourself. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, I don't have a problem. You guys just don't follow the rules of the house. But she made like a hard boundary about it. And so he had to. To keep his family. Yeah. Yeah. And he was viewing his OCD in the wrong lens. Mm. He was viewing it as, I am a partner to my OCD. My OCD is keeping me safe. We're on the same team and you are against Uh me and OCD. And that's the first thing you want to do is realign. OCD is not your friend. OCD is not keeping you safe. Um, Even with COVID, there's still typical and atypical responses to COVID. Because sometimes people with OCD will say, look, and then there's COVID, you know, and I was right. No, because... Even the kids that I was seeing around COVID who had contamination or germ issue themes, which is really just one tiny, tiny theme in OCD world, they upped the ante. They were washing like 30, 50 times a day in their own home. Like it was still a beyond what was the new norm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I agree. And it's not that parents are going to have to pull this back overnight. There are systematic approaches to pull back accommodations and get out of the OCD loop so that you're not a component to the OCD. And that takes some time. But I think parents don't even realize that they should be because they're approaching it in an intuitive way. And so they don't realize that they're growing the neural pathways of OCD in their child's brain. Mm -hmm. 
Al-Anon for family members of people who have OCD. There's got to be like a, I mean, I guess you've created that, right? Yeah, I think I am kind of the Al-Anon. I mean, I think that's what I do, you know, is help parents feel good about, it's not even tough love because it's educational love. I think it's educating both your child and you on the counterintuitive approach to OCD. I already love the fact that you've separated it out that the OCD is not the identity of the person, it's this other entity. And we have to keep ourselves sort of looking at it as this other thing. And how do we want to interact with it instead of being in alignment with it, right? That's really important for self-esteem as well. And for the family to be together. So both my younger daughter and my son have OCD. And that's just the universe being like really obnoxious because I was doing this before I had kids. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean... (laughs) Mental health issues run in my family and we have some OCD, but two in one family, that's just really not funny. Yeah. But it helps because I understand it on a personal level and it helps me be a better clinician and understand parents. But so when my kids, so they have names for their OCD. So my son's OCD is called Squishy and my daughter will call it her O-Cloud. And it makes it easier when, so my daughter has sensory motor OCD is one of her many themes. And that's a weird one too. Sensory motor is like hyper-focused on bodily functions. No, no one would realize that that's OCD. So you're hyper-focusing on your ability to blink or your ability to swallow or your heart beating or your bladder. Hers is her bladder, you know? And so in the past, she felt like she had to pee like 50, 60 times an hour. Like it becomes really debilitating. Mm-hmm. Can't really even leave the house because you have to be by a toilet. Always rule out medical when there's something physiological happening. And you no, know, it's just another OCD theme. But so she'll be sneaky and she'll want reassurance. So if we're going on a road trip... We've improved since first grade where she really couldn't even go to school. She couldn't go to the cafe. There were a lot of issues. But if we're going on a long road trip, she'll just say, huh, how long is that road trip? She's 11 now, you know, and I'm sometimes stupid and don't realize that OCD is trying to talk to me. And I'll be like, let me think about it. Okay. It's about seven hours. Because that's a normal question, right? What's the behind of the question, right? Yeah. (laughs) Right. And it's chess. She makes her first move and like... She's thinking five steps ahead. You know, that's long. It's in the desert. You know, are we going to be stopping anywhere? Well, yeah, we're going to stop. Well, how long do you think we will? And then I'm like, oh my gosh. Now, this is where the personification comes in. I could say, you know, I'm not going to talk to you about this because that's your OCD or whatever. But instead, I can say, I'm sorry that your O Cloud is really worried about this long trip and tell your O Cloud that we got it covered, that we'll deal with it. Your O Cloud doesn't need to know about this stuff. And so then I'm like unifying us against her OCD instead of talking directly to her, which helps her self-esteem. It helps align us. And even adults name their OCD. I even name my social anxiety. Like personification is great. I love that because the truth of the matter is, is like it's in alignment with a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast. And one of the things we talk about is like disclosing and giving language to whatever sort of is going on with the kid because their interpretation, oftentimes if it's an academic challenge, is like, I'm stupid. Because that's the language that they have around it. And so giving it some sort of separate personification separates it out of who they are as a person. Yeah, exactly. Really interesting. Let me ask you this. Perfectionism versus OCD. Like people will say with pride, I have a touch of OCD. No, you don't. Or maybe you do. I don't know. But how do you sort of parse that out? The perfectionism piece from OCD. There is an overlap, but I think when people say I have a touch of OCD, they typically don't because they don't understand it. They're saying it, meaning they're like neurotic or they want things perfect. And having perfectionism can be an anxiety issue. 
can be a personality struggle, but it's not OCD. Because when it's OCD, you're having an intrusive thought or feeling and the need to do something or avoid something to get that brief relief. But the more you do or avoid, the bigger it grows. Perfectionism isn't necessarily that way. You can have anxiety and you can kind of stew over it and want things perfect. And But just right OCD can sometimes overlap with perfectionism. But there are differences. So you can have both, but they are two separate things. Sometimes people say perfectionism, OCD. I don't like that term because just right OCD is the feeling like something isn't just right. It's not enough or it's incomplete. And so this can be misconstrued or mislabeled as perfectionism. So you might have a child who is writing and rewriting their handwriting over and over again, and they're erasing and you see like the holes in their paper or they're reading and rereading and reading and rereading. And when you ask them why that is, it's because that T didn't look good enough. It wasn't just right. And so I have to keep doing it until it's just, just right. It has to hit that line. It has to, you know, get to that. It's almost, it's nonsensical. It's almost illogical. They're just like stuck on redo, redo. Or kids who reread, they have to reread and reread. But when you ask them, they'll say, I feel like I just didn't get it. You know, I feel like I just didn't fully get it. I didn't completely understand it, which is more of a just right OCD issue. And so the difference is it's on this loop until it feels just right, which it's never satiated, you know? And so that is the difference. Things have to look just right. Things have to be put in a certain place until they're just right. But it's not a perfectionism because it's not tied to their identity of, I want to be this perfect person. You can have moral OCD and have perfectionism because you don't want to be a bad person. And to be a bad person might be to be a sloppy person, to be a person who gets a C. It can feed into that. And so there is a messy, messy middle with all of these where there's a little bit of both. Fascinating. I want to dig into the anxiety a little bit because there's definitely kids that we work with that have OCD, but there's also a lot of kids that have anxiety. And I'm curious how you describe the anxiety to kids. How do you explain it to them? I talk about anxiety in a completely different way. And I know a lot of people say OCD is part of anxiety and the DSM now disagrees, you know, for now, you know, they're in separate categories. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And in some ways I'm kind of glad because I do feel like they're different parts of the brain. They're comorbid conditions and they can seem similar, but how we approach them and how they present are really different. So when I'm talking about anxiety, I talk about, depends on the child's age, as far as my metaphors go, but I talk about an overreactive lifeguard and it depends on also the personality. So I'll just explain this. So you have an overreactive lifeguard and you know, your lifeguard, you know, your amygdala is there to look out for you. That's normal. That's good. That's healthy. We all want that, you know? And so it smells smoke. It's like, I think there could be a fire. Let's go check it out. But an overreactive lifeguard is overzealous and not very good at its job. And so it smells, you know, a bonfire and it's like, oh gosh, there's a fire. It, you know, see some orange. It goes, oh my gosh, there's a fire. And so it's constantly hitting the emergency button in your brain over and over again. And so you're living in this fight or flight because once he hits the button, all these chemicals get released so that you can run faster, so you can, you know, respond better. And so you feel the physical components without the fire. And so when we have anxiety, we have to learn how to differentiate, is that my overreactive lifeguard? Because he's not really good. So you kind of have to manually override him and check it out. And then this is where it depends on the child's personality. Because we have a lot of anxiety therapists who are very like, accept your anxiety. Your anxiety is here to support you, you know, and let's just love on the anxiety, you know, the little anxiety, and it's just there to protect you. And then 
there are kids, my kids especially, and like myself included with having my own anxiety disorder who are like, I want to obliterate it. I want to crush it. Like I want to like smash my like lifeguard and get a new one. I'm hiring a new one. You're fired. I think as therapists and as parents, we have to tune into what the child's personality would resonate with. Sometimes if I have a really smart kid, I'll talk about, you know, that that's version 1.0 and we need an upgrade. We need a 2.0. And so I, we just talk about it in a very concrete, you know, computer term. And so a lot of kids get that too. Are you operating on version 1.0? Let's work on this. And so that aspect of that metaphor, I think it depends on your kids. My son calls his OCD squishy because he wants to squish it. I call my social anxiety paro because it makes me paranoid. And I don't have a loving relationship with paro. I have more of a like, you're not going to destroy my life. But I think you have to do what really resonates with that personality who's struggling. I have a question about OCD. Is it genetic? Yeah, there is a high genetic component, not 100%, you know, just like anxiety or other mental health conditions, you know, in twin studies, not every identical twin gets OCD. So there is the environmental factor, which I think is more of a stressor, but it is highly genetic. You know, there's pandas and pans where an infection can be the stressor or inflammation can be the stressor. When parents hear environmental, they just immediately go to their parenting. Yeah. You know, well, then if they didn't have to have it, then right. it must have been something I did. An environmental stressor could literally be something external, like an infection or inflammation or an autoimmune issue or life stressors. You know, I am educated. I was educated before kids came out of my womb and they still came out of my womb with anxiety and OCD. <laughs> you know? Like, boom, that genetic predisposition was just like, I'm going to blossom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But only for two out of three. No. Oh, all three. Okay. <laughs> I think she's subclinical on the OCD. We argue about that. My 19-year-old, we argue about that all the time. I'm like, okay. oh, I'm going to call it subclinical, but it's there. She, I don't have OCD. Stop telling people you have three kids with OCD. <laughs> but she's okay with me saying she has an anxiety disorder because she's on medication for that. So we can't debate that. That's a topic that I want to dig into maybe a little bit more in the next episode as we talk about the impact of learning. But I would also love to hear your thoughts on the medication component of it. Because it's both, right? Both can be helpful. Yeah. It's always good to try therapy first. You know, if it's not impeding in their social emotional development to the point where it's critical that they get on medication right away. Now, some kids get anxiety or CD symptoms that are so debilitating very suddenly that they do need to go on medication before they can benefit from therapy. Mm. And, you know, looking at the red flags of panis and pans is important too, because then you have that medical component. The problem with that one though, I think is like, sometimes they go, oh, it's pandas pans. I'm going to get the medical component. I don't need any of the therapy. And that's concerning because you do need the therapy still. Um, My son has pans, but my other kids don't. And that's a component of it, but he still needs the ERP. He still needs the therapy. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is? Because I don't think the lay person knows what it is. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. And I'm definitely not the expert go-to on pandas and pans. You can always go to pandasnetwork.org and really dive deep into it. Because some people think, well, if my child has sudden onset of OCD, they have pandas or pans. And that's really not true. Mm -hmm. First, it doesn't have to be sudden onset. And sometimes OCD does seem like it's out of the blue. When that genetic seed just blossoms in an ugly way, blossom sounds beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just how it presents. But when you have pandas and pans, it can either be caused by strep, that's the pandas, or pans through other like different areas. There's a million different ways that you can get inflammation in the brain that kind of sticks around, especially with autoimmune issues as well. But there's other red flags that include 
a decompensation in math skills, some decompensation in writing. And so you can see kids have like this perfect writing and then all of a sudden it's a neurological issue. So it goes sideways. Mm. They can't draw. Like you'll see pictures of before and after with kids with pandas or pans where like they can draw these beautiful things and then their gross motor and their fine motor skills are off. And I'm just listing some of the red flags that are separate from the OCD because people think pandas, pans, like OCD and ticks. And that's actually par for the course with OCD. So the things that separate them out are the deficit in math skills, the handwriting, the rages, like really out of control rages that come out of the blue, some incontinence. And so incontinence that wasn't there before mm-hmm. is also a red flag. Uh, so if you have those things where you're like, oh my gosh. And then sometimes the issues that happen that show up more with pandas and pans are ARFID, void of restrictive food intake disorder. So a lot of restrictive eating is a common component of that. It doesn't have to be, but it is a common one. And then separation anxiety. But if you have a child with separation anxiety, That doesn't mean they have pandas and pants, you know, so it goes one way, but not the other. I just want to be very careful because I don't want people to be like, no, I appreciate you explaining that because I've worked with kids with that diagnosis before in the classroom and it's not one that's like super common that the lay parent would know about. So yeah. Is there anything else you want to make sure we talk about with anxiety and OCD? Medication. I just want to swing back to that and answer your question because I kind of got off on this tangent about pandas and pants, but A lot of kids need medication and therapy to go hand in hand. With anxiety, sometimes they need medication to just build those skills. And then once they go off medication, they seem to do really, really well. With OCD, research is not showing that. They go on medication and they do really well. They need a much higher dose of like an SSRI, which is the most common type of medication to give kids with anxiety or OCD. So you give the same medications for anxiety that you would for OCD, but with OCD, it's much higher dosages. And once they go off medication, they tend to not do well as often. And so um, having that understanding of giving your kids what they need in order to be able to function so that they don't have to live with those intrusive thoughts. And some kids just can't do the ERP therapy until they have that medication component. And there's nothing wrong with that. We give kids medication for diabetes or asthma. And I see that in the same realm for kids with OCD. That's what I always say. Suffering is optional sometimes. Right. Like pain is unavoidable, but suffering is optional. I like that. Just going back to some anxiety versus OCD, two things I'm wondering. The thing about social anxiety and, you know, how for a lot of kids, especially COVID kids, right, that's definitely showing up. So sort of what you're seeing there. And if you could give a couple more concrete examples when you were talking about like symmetry OCD or like what it might actually look like at home, what parents might really need to watch out for. What are some of those red flags? Yeah, those are great questions. The difference between anxiety and OCD, one is different parts of the brain. Basal ganglia is kind of driving the OCD and amygdala is driving the anxiety and it shows up differently. And so with anxiety, you can talk to your child's anxiety. Anxiety's food is avoidance. And OCD likes a little flavor of avoidance, but it shows up in a different way. For OCD, it's like an avoidance of, I can't touch the red cup. I can't sit on that couch. I can't say the word, you know, bad, or it's like very nonsensical and specific. With anxiety, it's just avoidance. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to sleep in the dark. I don't want to take that test. I don't want to have to perform. So it's just avoid the difficult situation. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is when you talk to your child who's anxious, and my kids have both. And so you can have, and sometimes I'm talking to their anxiety and sometimes I'm talking to their OCD and it does make a difference. I'll use my son as an example. He had a fear of bad guys and that was an anxiety theme. You know, they're comorbid conditions. And so I'm going to talk to him 
about that in a rational way. You know, I think bad guys can come up to my room. I'm like, well, let's talk about it. How are they going to come up to your room? He lives very high up, you know, and they're going to climb the walls. Well, let's go outside and look at the wall. A regular ladder is not even going to be able to reach your window. So I'm problem solving with him mm-hmm. and he's getting better. He's like, wait, that's true. Okay. That doesn't make any sense. So he's starting to feel better about it. And so when you problem solve and do some cognitive restructuring and we're reframing his thoughts, he's starting to get better. Just the same thing with social anxiety. You know, what's the worst that can happen? Well, they might think I'm an idiot. Mm -hmm. If they think you're an idiot, are they your friend? No, they're not. Then who cares, right? Let's talk about that. With OCD, it will not matter. And so when you talk to OCD, let's say they have moral OCD. We'll just use that one because we had already talked about it. Mom, what if I'm a bad person? You know, and normally it'll pick something they value. Like, let's say that they value not being a racist. OCD be like, you're such a racist. Mm. You looked at that person who had a racist thought, right? And so they'll say, I think I'm racist, mom. You know, so they might want to avoid looking at people that will trigger that thought. So I need to avoid looking at anyone who's culturally different than me. And so I can't go to school or I can't talk to my friend anymore, right? So that's avoidance, but it's avoidance with an OCD flavor, not an anxiety flavor. You can see the difference. It's like irrational and Mm -hmm. weird. I don't mean weird, like in a shaming way, just like it's off, you know, it's like, what? And then they might ask the parent, "Um, am I racist? No, honey, we're like a loving family. We're not racist people. And, but it doesn't satisfy, like the anxiety gets satisfied over time. And the questions might change. Like my son will say, this is when he was little. He's like, well, what if someone takes plungers and they can plunge their way up to my wall? So he's coming up with like more interesting, like he's like thinking about it. Mm-hmm. The conversation's moving. Then I get the plunger out. Well, let's see, can you stick this to the wall? You've been watching too many cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but with OCD, it's not satisfied. And so you'll say like, you know, we're good people. We don't judge people, whatever. And then two seconds later, but mom, do you think I'm racist? But mom, but do you think I'm racist? But I forgot to tell you this one part. Does that make me racist? And you're like, we have already talked about this. Mm-hmm. And so there's frustration that you're getting nowhere because it's never satiated. So that's the difference in how it would look as far as, you know, being a loved one who's dealing with it. Mm-hmm. What are some like common things that you see that a parent should watch for? Yeah. So symmetry is wanting things balanced on both sides of your body. And so that one actually goes unnoticed a lot because I pick up the cup with my left hand, but now I have to even it out with my right hand. And that can actually become very scary because I broke my left arm and now I feel like I need to break my other arm. That's an extreme example. But I think sometimes we think symmetry, well, is it that bad? And sometimes you have to be careful with sensory because it can get misconstrued because they might want their left shoe to feel as tight as their right shoe, or their ponytail has to be as tight as their other ponytail, or I bumped my left arm, so I have to bump my right arm. So that's symmetry. Moral, we talked about that a lot. Contamination OCD can really be, they identify something as contaminated and it can be anything. I think sometimes we think contamination OCD is about germs, which again, is not the core fear because it's what does the germ mean? And so you can have people who have a metaphobia, the fear of throwing up, which can very quickly go into the OCD category, depending on the compulsions they're doing. But I've worked with people who had contamination over dust, plastic, besides germs, glitter, I'm just trying to think of some common ones. It's just the view that this thing is contaminated and then it's going to spread. And so I have to avoid things. So if you see a child who is just avoiding things, they're opening up doors with their elbows or using tissues to open up things or washing things using a lot of Clorox wipes. Now you've got people who think Clorox wipes are poisonous. And so that can be an OCD theme too, where that's actually the contaminant. But when you're seeing your child have these rigid routines where they're not able to touch or do things or they're overwashing, that's a concern. 
or where they're getting stuck. And so they're in this repeat. You can have kids who have to do things to avoid bad things from happening. And that's not always. I think sometimes people think that's the crux of OCD. And sometimes therapists will say, well, what are you worried will happen? And sometimes it's not a worry. It's a feeling of disgust. It just grosses me out. Like I don't have a fear, but the core fear is I can't handle the disgust it's driving. And so looking at the questions your kids ask you, because they'll hook you in with what they're asking you to do or avoid, and then look closer. Yeah. Having the heater or air conditioning at a certain temperature or the volume at a certain level, like those things. Numbers. Yeah. I've seen definitely with clients in the past too, or to make sure that a sibling won't die or a parent won't die, you know, you need to do X, Y, Z or look at things a certain way. That's definitely showing up. So those are some things to watch out for if you're a parent. But if you're a parent, the resources that you provide that I think is phenomenal. So please tell us. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's very hard to find a pediatric or a child and adolescent anxiety and OCD therapist. It's much easier to find an anxiety therapist, but harder to find an OCD therapist. And it does make a difference because you don't want someone talking to the OCD the whole session. And so um, I created online resources. So I have courses like how to teach your child to crush anxiety, how to teach your child to crush OCD. Um, recently, I came out with a course that's directly for kids and teens, like how to crush OCD for kids and teens. And so I have, I just took everything I teach in my therapy practice and I just recorded it. <laughs> you know, I just made videos and worksheets. And then I started having families take my course before I started to see them in my practice. Cause I'm like, we can save you like a lot of money in like five sessions. If you could just get the foundational stuff in your living room and then come to me. And so, mm. yeah, provide that. And then over time, people wanted more in-depth support. And I closed my private practice to focus solely on this. So I don't do online coaching or one-on-one support. So I created an online community, a membership community where they can work with me directly, but then there's a thousand of us. And so they all help each other. And it's just this community of weekly classes and forums and people can reach out to me and get that ongoing support. Great. And what's that called? It's called AT Parenting Community. AT Parenting Community. So if you are a parent that is listening and you need some support, that's your go-to. We will put it in the show notes so you don't have to go back and write it down. And we will continue this conversation with Natasha Daniels. And we're going to talk about education in the next episode and how OCD and anxiety impact education. So thank you for joining us, Natasha. And can you say our signature sign-off, which is have a great week, Smarties? Have a great week, Smarties. I like it. (laughs) Have a great week. Have a great week. 